Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, star witness. All right. You're the you're the guy that they bring out and everyone in the courtroom gasps, right? Yeah. And that's what happens. It's a surprise witness surprise witness too, like, what? They never told us about this. We yeah. object, Your Honor. <laughs> He's gonna do comedy on the stand? That's not acceptable <laughs> at all. <laughs> I'm a lawyer from the early nineteen hundreds. I'm wearing a white suit and I have a suspenders and a, a fan, a hand fan to fan myself in these hot courtrooms. Nice. So you're the lawyer and the witness. <laughs> no, well, I objected to the witness as the lawyer. So oh, okay. that's how yeah. we got there. You're, you're yeah. playing multiple parts here within this whole scenario. Right. Yeah. It's good. Sort of a one-man show. It's, it's multiple people uh-huh. in this courtroom. And then, you know, the bailiffs are like, order, order. But he doesn't uh-huh. really say order. No, no. The, the, judge, ju- says the judge says that. Yeah. So then the judge is like, bailiff, uh, I'll handle that part. <laughs> You watched a whole two and a half hour courtroom documentary and you still can't get those roles right. Um, so the reason maybe we're talking about court is because in this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're taking a look at our documentary pick for the year, which is Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. And it is largely uh, a courtroom documentary, although there's a lot more to it about the, well, what would become to be known as the West Memphis Three, the three teenagers who were accused of murdering three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993, and the uh, subsequent trials and all of the people surrounding the case and how it played out at least to the point at which the trials initially concluded. And then, of course, this case became a huge thing that dragged on for many, many years. But this is really where that started, where the whole uh, West Memphis Three movement and and pop culture phenomenon got its start was with this film. Yep. And it is no easier to watch now than it was the first time I saw it. And I don't mean that in a quality of filmmaking way, because it's a very good movie. It's just so hard to watch how bad everyone is wronged in this movie in one way or another. Yeah, it is tough. I mean, and and it starts out like literally the very beginning of the movie is like graphic crime scene photos of dead children. Like they are not pulling any punches in this movie at all. Um, but I, I agree that while it's it's tough to watch, it's a fascinating film And it was a highly acclaimed film and a successful film when it initially came out. I mean, that was why it it was able to launch this whole phenomenon. It premiered at the 1996 uh, Sundance Film Festival. And something interesting to me, I was trying to find like box office figures and stuff like that. And this was an HBO production. I mean, HBO bankrolled it. And then um, it premiered on HBO in June of 1996. And then after that, it went on to a theatrical release in the fall of 1996 uh, when it grossed uh, $249,000, which is not a lot, but I assume it didn't really matter. I mean, HBO had gotten out of it what they wanted to get out of it. But I feel like that was interesting because that's sort of the opposite of what we have now, where if there's a movie that's going to be on cable or on a streaming service and also in theaters, it's always in theaters first, because by the time it's available at home, no one is going out to theaters to see it. So I don't know. That was just a random side note that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, let's mention uh, Sheila Nevins there, huh? The uh, head of HBO documentaries for probably more than two decades, I think. And she really set HBO up as the place, you know, to take forward thinking progressive filmmaking documentaries um, to television outlets, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. She's a huge figure in HBO history and in documentary history. And and of course, this movie, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but it was so influential on the the style of filmmaking and the the subject matter of documentaries, especially on cable and then later on streaming, that people were interested in, that these outlets would air and that would buy at festivals and stuff like that. And obviously she 
uh, was a huge proponent of that and, and kind of led the way with that. So because it was an HBO movie, although it got a theatrical release later, I assume it wasn't eligible for any Oscars because it aired on TV first. Uh, it did win an Emmy for Outstanding Informational Programming, though, which I think is, I, I don't know if that's what the category is called now, but I assume that's essentially the the like feature documentary category. Uh, at the Emmys. And and it played at several other film festivals uh, after Sundance before it ended up on uh, on HBO. So, and it was reviewed by Siskel and Ebert. I was, I was trying to figure out, you know, at like what kind of time period that was, whether that was when it aired on HBO or when it came out in theaters. And they didn't mention in their review, like where you could see the movie at the time, but they did love it. They gave it two thumbs up and, and critics were big fans of it. Roger Ebert in his written review said... The film creates a vivid portrait of a subculture in which Satan is a central figure. Where did Damien, Jason, and Jesse, those are the three accused, hear about satanic rituals? Mostly in church, it would appear. Some members of this community seem to require Satanism as part of their worldview. They seize upon the devil to explain what dismays them. Their frequent theme is vengeance, and it is blood-curdling to hear relatives of the victims promise that if the defendants are released, they will track them down and kill them. We leave the film unsure about who committed the murders, but convinced that an obsession with Satanism extends here far beyond the circle of defendants. Yeah, that's what I mean when it's tough to watch. You know, there was um, one of the victim's mothers who, after Jesse Miss Kelly, the first Part of the movie covers his trial um, is given a life in prison sentence. He, she says, uh, I'm going to I'm going to send you a dress. So you look all pretty in prison, you know, for, for right. all the male prisoners. And it's like it's a horrible thing to say. This kid's 17, maybe. And he's um, he's got an IQ of 72. So he's functioning, but not at um, the highest level, let's say. But at the same time. This mother thought that this was the person that killed her son. So it's like, again, everyone, everyone has so many things horrible happen to them. It's tough to fault anyone for their emotional reactions. That's true. But, you know, there's definitely that uh, Old Testament sense of vengeance going on amongst these people. And you're right. You can't. I mean, you know, thankfully, none, none of us know what it would be like to have your child murdered. And, and it's hard to criticize anyone for how they react to some kind of horrible tragedy like that. But on the other hand, you can you can sense that the obsession, as as Ebert says, with not only with religion, but especially with the idea of Satan, with the idea of the devil corrupting people, in, in a way corrupts the people on both sides because it, it gives them that idea that that kind of vengeance or that, you know, violence uh, perpetrated on the murderers is the only way for justice to be served. Uh, that's also, you know, you, you know, the obsession with Satan, but also the obsession with being a good churchgoer, right? You know, I think that's the point. So, you know, these foregone conclusions on these guys must have uh, killed the kids because they're different and they, you know, they, they read, you know, whatever satanic verses are into Wiccan or, you know, uh, activities. So the whole thing is, is yeah, very difficult to swallow. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the point is that those are sort of two sides of the same coin. And these people see themselves as being churchgoers as if they're like completely uh, the opposite of, you know, what they imagine as like a devil worshiper or whatever, when really what they are is just sort of the reflection of that. It's the same thing just on a slightly different perspective, at least is kind of how it seems to me. Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, the filmmakers probed their material deeply, developing exceptionally ready access to sources on either side of the case. Their camera is everywhere, in the courtroom, in jail, at lawyers' conferences, at family gatherings, and among the press. In assembling their film, they heightened some of its drama by withholding certain facts until strategic moments. But the cumulative credibility and persuasiveness of Paradise Lost are not compromised. Without trivializing the killings they came to investigate, the filmmakers carefully study the tattered social fabric that is the backdrop for an unthinkable crime. And it is amazing watching this movie, especially when you know 
like the way that these filmmakers became advocates for the West Memphis Three later on. Uh, it's amazing to see the level of access they have to both sides. And, and no one seems like suspicious of them at this point. Like, should we let them in the courtroom? Should we let them into these meetings? Should we talk to them? They Everyone is just completely open with them, which is interesting. And I thought that too, but not because they later became advocates for the West Memphis Three, but because it was uh, the mid nineties, you know, now it's this huge true crime culture and everything, but this was something very, you know, ahead of its time in some ways. So it's for the entire community to let them in, like you said, almost full access. They shot 10 months, 79 filming days here is, um, you know, <clears throat> defendants, uh, victims, families, you know, everyone, the, the judges, the, even like the lawyers reference. Oh, you, you know, you got this knife from Bruce, the filmmaker, you know, it's like uh, they just really had all access, which um, is why this film is so effective. Right. But I mean, I, I think I think you're right that obviously at this time there wasn't the same level of documentaries being made about cases like this. But at the same time, people are understanding of how they might be depicted in the media. I mean, there's multiple scenes in this movie where different uh, people talk about how they don't trust the press or you shouldn't trust the press or whatever. There's even a reference to fake news at one point in this movie. So I don't think they're unaware of the way that they could be depicted or twisted in a depiction. But for whatever reason, they've decided that these documentary filmmakers are OK to trust and they'll let them in. Yeah, I think they separate them. These these are, you know, filmmakers, not local newspapers. So they have a different level of trust with them. Right, right. No, I think so. And I think maybe you're right that now those are kind of all equated because there's so many filmmakers out trying to capture these true crime stories. But uh, it is fascinating. And I think I haven't seen... Uh, the two the two sequels to this in a while. But, you know, once this movie came out, then there was a clear agenda going into those other movies because those filmmakers were now actively trying to advocate for the West Memphis Three. And I think that probably changed the level of access they got to certain people and when they made those later movies. I think you're right. But also I remember, and I agree, I haven't seen the second two since... I first viewed them probably a decade or so ago, but at Revelations, I think the second one is all about uh, John Mark Byers, right? The stepfather and yeah. uh, who, who had given them the knife and everyone thought he must have killed them and uh, killed the kids. And he gives them full access. He's like, come on in Revelations, follow me around. Give me a lie detector test. I'll pass it, you know? So right. he's the one who became the main suspect in that in that film. Right. But but again, I feel like, you know, because of that, he knows they have a perspective and agenda and that's the way he's approaching it. Whereas in this movie, I mean, you definitely come away from the movie thinking these kids are innocent and they've been railroaded by the system. But I think the movie, it doesn't push that on you necessarily. It doesn't feel like a movie with an agenda as much as maybe the later two movies do. I understand that. Yes. And you could understand um getting attached to your subjects if they are three teenage kids whose lives are now over because they are falsely convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Yeah. No, what I'm saying is like from a filmmaking standpoint, the reaction that this film garnered and helped push, you know, the kind of freeing of these uh, of the West Memphis three over a long period of time that I think they that uh, the filmmakers probably felt like they had a responsibility to the, the three just to continue to push their story out in the forefront. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not necessarily blaming them. I'm just saying it does uh, affect the way the movie comes across and the way that they're able to put the movie together. Um, and there was some, you know, criticism of that idea of what kind of agenda they might have. Um, Peter Stack in the San Francisco Chronicle said... Paradise Lost is artful and audacious filmmaking, but to some it may have the ring of the exploitive as well. The events of Paradise Lost were filmed as they occurred, including interviews with the dead children's family members seized by a seething spirit of vengeance. With the cameras poking everywhere, the biggest event is the community outrage that condemned the three suspects before they ever stepped into a courthouse. The film reveals a town where poverty and inadequate education are everyday factors. Fundamentalist religion also plays a major role. 
Although the directors, noted for what they term nonfiction feature films, let their cameras wander, the question inevitably raised is whether the filming caused people to change their behavior while cameras rolled. If so, the film's own search for truth seems compromised, but Paradise Lost succeeds as bitter drama nonetheless. So, I mean, that's a question I think of any documentary is like, uh, you know, people know the cameras are there. To what degree are they changing the way they behave because of cameras? I don't think you can avoid, it's impossible to avoid that as a documentary filmmaker. Right. And, you know, we men- I've already mentioned John Mark Byers, who, you know, he's singing in church and he's he shows off for the camera a little, but he's probably that way in real life too, you know? So, and then, you know, Damien Eccles, the quote unquote ringleader of the West Memphis Three in future uh, interviews has said there are things that he said for the camera that, you know, he thought were like kind of jokey that came back to haunt him. So, yeah, you know, it's a it's um, it's an honest portrayal. But, yeah, the cameras are always going to affect things one way or another. Right. And I think especially, yeah, you're right with Damien Eccles, like, you know, he's still of kind of an immature teenager and he's got this big spotlight on him and he thinks he's cool, even if he's, you know, being accused of this terrible crime and facing the death penalty. He still has this sense of like, ooh, people are paying attention to me. I'm going to act like a cool guy. And, you know, it's hard to blame someone like that at that age for for doing that. Um, and that's something that, that happens because the cameras are on him. Um so it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, I don't think it makes the movie bad in any way, but it is something to, that kind of crosses your mind. And especially the way also they depict, you know, this is this backwoods community and everyone here is kind of a hillbilly. And obviously these directors come in from, from outside in order to depict that. And I don't think the movie is condescending or anything. I think it's, it's, it's fair, but there is a, maybe a little whiff of that of uh, kind of like, look at these freaks going on here in this movie. I I didn't get that. I mean, because the characters you see are the characters in the town, you know, these are who they are. Um, So I didn't think that uh, Berliner, Berlinger, Berlinger, is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And and, uh, Bruce. uh, Sanofsky. Sanofsky, yeah. Yeah. Man, those are two tough ones, Berlinger and Sanofsky. I don't think they were, you know, shining any brighter light on any of them, which I know in past documentaries, like in Crumb, we've talked about, like, are they kind of showcasing different aspects that they shouldn't be showcasing? Right. I mean, and I think that's a question that comes up. I mean, it, you know, you can you can ask that related to Michael Moore, too, in like Roger and Me that we talked about, which has that, you know, the infamous uh, the bunny slaughter lady. And you could question like, you know, at. To what degree are these filmmakers, these educated, you know, quote, elitist, maybe uh, filmmakers kind of looking down on their subjects? And I think you're right. They're not they're not putting words in these people's mouths. They're not doing anything that the people aren't doing themselves. But, you know, the fact they're they're choosing what to show. They have hours and hours and hours. I mean, 10 months of shooting. They have a, a, a massive amount of footage and they're putting in specifically what they want to put in. They're editing it in a certain way. So it is something that that kind of crossed my mind. I, I don't think they're doing it disingenuously. I don't think they're uh, out to get anyone necessarily, but it, it's it's something that, that I thought about as I was watching the movie. I guess it's fair. I just don't think you can... Once you start limiting these things, right, then where where does it stop? And then as a documentary filmmaker, you're almost losing more content than you're getting. Right. No, and I'm not saying they should have done it any differently. I'm just saying it it's something that that happens. It's inevitable that it happens and it it comes across. Um, but no, I mean, I think overall this is a, like an extremely well-made movie. Uh, I'd seen, I think this might be the third time that I've seen it because I remember watching it possibly in 1996 or or pretty soon, not on HBO maybe, I think I rented it on video or something, um, but when it was fairly fresh still. And uh, for me, the big factor that kind of got me to see it was the fact that it had this has this Metallica music in it. This was the first movie that Metallica had ever given permission to use their music in a movie uh, because Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were, were big Metallica fans. They authorized it. And I also was a huge Metallica fan at the time. And I probably heard about it through the Metallica fan club or something like that. And I thought, oh, I should check this out because of them and watched it at that time. 
Um, and then I know I watched it again when the the third one came out because I think I wrote a review of that. And it's it's still a very powerful movie. I mean, even as much as like there's been so much saturation pop culture wise on this film with the sequels and other films that have been made and books and interviews and everything like that. This is still a very powerful movie to tell you that beginning part of the story, I think. It is it, it is um, infuriating to watch. Uh, probably more so this time for me because the first time I didn't know all the things I know about it, you know, and this time it's like I'm watching it. I'm like, I know the outcome, but I'm like, no, it shouldn't be this outcome. But um, yeah, you mentioned the third one, Purgatory. That one did get nominated for a Best Documentary Oscar. Uh, it didn't win, but it was nominated. And uh, I wanted to just mention the Metallica soundtrack Definitely sets the mood for the movie. They did a uh, really good job of uh, picking the songs and placing them in very specific ways to enhance the film. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, like I said, I'm a big Metallica fan, so I'm always happy to hear their songs, but I think it does add. It wasn't just like a gimmick, like, oh, we're going to get this famous band to let us use their music because it has a connection to these uh, these people in the film, like it, it works as, as an element of the story as well. So did you see it like in the nineties or did you not see it until later? No, I think I saw it when all three, uh, had hit HBO. Like when all, when all, when the third one came out, maybe, um, on HBO, it was like, Hey, we have all three. And I watched them all like probably three nights in a row which was not the easiest thing to do. So, <laughs> yeah, when the third one came out because I was trying to refresh my memory, I think I might have watched all three of them in pretty quick succession as well and yeah, it's it's a lot to watch at once. Even just this one, this is two and a half hours long. It's it's intense to sit through uh to sit through this entire movie all at once. And we'll talk more about that intensity in uh, just a moment. We'll come back and give our general thoughts on Paradise Lost. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about our documentary pick, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. Uh, as we were just saying, it's, I mean, it's a hard movie to watch and it's a long movie. It's an intense experience. I definitely divided it into, into two this time as I was watching it because it's a lot to deal with at once. I also had to segment it and uh, just to give the names out there, uh, the three boys who were murdered, Chris Byers, Michael Moore, Steve Branch, uh, and the three, the West Memphis three, the three accused of killing them, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Uh, that's kind of what the story uh, revolves around. We see the court case first of Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., then uh, Baldwin and Eccles, and um, kind of encapsulating and uh, enveloping this are all the townspeople, the family members, like we said, on both sides, and the real villains, the uh, judge and the prosecutors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say, like, the prosecutors, obviously, they're, they're doing their jobs in the way that, like, the police present them a case and they have to, you know, they have to prosecute it. So, I mean, and the villains are maybe more the cops who coerced a a confession out of Jesse Miss Kelly and uh, put together a, a case with with virtually no evidence uh, and just found random teenagers who uh, looked shady. I think they're they're more even though we maybe don't see them as much. We see that one lead uh, detective who, after the trial is over, says he's my, maybe going to run for office. Um, but otherwise, we don't see the cops as much as the prosecutor because we spend so much time in the courtroom. But I would blame them more so. I think that's fair. I mean, the prosecutors had to know there were a lot of things in there that didn't add up to, but I get it. They were doing their job. Um, but the yes, the cops, the mishandling of evidence uh, as in, well, here, so for instance, the prosecutors saying these three, uh, the Mem West Memphis three killed these boys down in that creek, yet there's no blood in the creek, you know, like physically it's impossible for there to be, to be no blood, things like that. You have, you know, they put people on the stand like a classmate, um, you know, a female classmate who says, I overheard Jason say this. And he's like, well, no one else overheard it. So how did you hear? You know, things like that. It's not a good case they built. And um, I agree with you. The cops uh, at one point, they mentioned that a manager at the Bojangles chicken restaurant said there was a, a gentleman who was in there 
like an older black man who was covered in blood and like shaking. And he called the cops and like the female uh, officer who showed up. I don't didn't ever like even go in to check. She just went through the drive through to see if everything was all right. She never placed the two together. It doesn't matter that she's a female. I was just describing her. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, and then they never and then then the next day they came back and got blood samples and never checked the blood samples and lost them. And it's like, man, how how are these guys even on trial at this point? But you're right. It also does start with the coerced confession of uh, Jesse Miss Kelly there, which leads to his conviction. And then the convictions of the other two, Baldwin and Eccles. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the misconduct there is really is the cops and more so than I mean, you talk about that Bojangles thing and like, yes, that's that's very irresponsible. But on the other hand, you can tell in this in this movie that the defense uh, is bringing up all of these, whether it's that Bojangles thing or the possibility that John Mark Byers had some involvement because of that knife that has some blood on it. I mean, those are just as circumstantial, if not more so than the cases against the three teenagers, but they're just trying to throw anything out there to say like, well, maybe it was this, or maybe it was that. And it's understandable, but I mean, I don't think you come away from this movie thinking like, oh, that guy from the Bojangles bathroom is the real killer or anything like that. No, like I said, I think a lot of people thought that John Mark Byers was the real killer after this, which now nobody does, you know. Right. But the, um, you know, the judge, and I I remember this from the other two, every time that they, uh, David Burnett was his name, who of course went on to become a politician, what a surprise, every time that they presented new evidence or, you know, hey, there's new techniques now for DNA, or, you know, inconclusive evidence from last trials or, you know, uh, we didn't have proper representation. Every time they brought it back to him for a new trial, he refused all of that. So he was a real asshole and uh, he sucks and I don't like him. Yeah, uh, he doesn't. You don't you don't see much really any of that in this movie, but they do have a lot of shots of him sitting at the bench kind of looking bored or uh, having his head in his hands or something where he he seems like he's sort of dismissive of the whole idea of this and wants to just get it over with and uh, and convict them. So you you can see how that'll play out later, I think. Yeah, I, I had read that uh, Dan Sidman, who is Miss Kelly's, um, you know, um, lawyer, who later also went on to become a judge. Um, at once he was walking past like the judge's chambers and the... Um, the uh, the judge told like the jury foreman, hey, we're going to break for lunch. And the jury foreman said, well, you know, we're going to we're almost you know, we're we've almost reached a conclusion. And the judge was like, yeah, but you're going to you know, you're going to need to eat before we get to sentencing. So he's already leading. You know, if that's true, he's leading the jury in the way that he wants the verdict to go. So uh, I don't like him, Josh. No, I mean, I don't blame you. And there's definitely not, uh, there's a lot of people to dislike in this movie, certainly. A lot of people who have uh, bad motivations. And uh, even even though, I mean, the, the parents of the victims, certainly, uh, especially John Mark Byers, as we've talked about, who, uh, as you said, no longer is, is a suspect in any way and was really uh, kind of vindicated by later films, um, you know, they all come off, they, they come off pretty poorly, all of these parents. And yet I, throughout this time, I was thinking, you know, they do deserve the sympathy because their children have been murdered. Even if these teenagers didn't do it, someone did it. And that's a horrible thing. And it makes you act irrationally, certainly. Yeah, I think that's basically what it comes down to is you're looking for in such a tragedy, they're probably looking for anything to grasp onto. And there's a very, man, uh, you know, a scene that kind of shakes you out of your seat where John Mark Byers, I think he takes, uh, is it Todd Moore, the the father of Michael Moore to the gun yeah. range? Yeah, one and, of the other fathers, yeah. Yeah, and they're shooting and he goes, you know, this this one's for you, Damien, and he shoots the target and this one's for you, Jason. And he's like, oh, Jesse, I only wounded you. And he shoots the target like a few more times and, you know, things like that are just... Just, uh, man, there's no black and white. It's just all gray here. But um, the other thing about John Mark Byers is he became a, another advocate to free the West Memphis Three um, as he learned more of the truth of what happened. 
Yeah, I mean, he's not the only one. I think at least one other parent has become uh, or had become an advocate for them to be released. And uh, but, you know, obviously here they don't they don't have full access to the information that would later come out. And so it's hard to blame them for this. Um, But you certainly do. I mean, John Mark Byers comes across as as kind of a crazy weirdo in this movie. And and the filmmakers give him enough, you know, rope to hang himself or however you want to say it. Uh, But of course, the point of this movie is that we shouldn't judge people for being crazy weirdos and assume that that means that they're murderers. That's what happened to the West Memphis Three, to the teenagers. Right. And the the reason they also focus on him is because he's very charismatic. You know, he is a showman, right? Like, yeah, you know, we see him singing in church. And the first time we see him is like kind of this padding shot in the creek where he's almost preaching about, you know, these are where the murders took place, where they took, you know, the lives of these three innocent boys. And, you know, so he does become a uh, magnetizing figure, no matter what you feel about him. You know, as opposed to Jason Baldwin is so quiet of the West Memphis Three, you feel like he's so far in over his head that like he doesn't even I don't know if they all comprehend what they're in. Like, you know, hey, yeah, we're in a murder trial, but this can't be real is what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all in over their heads. And just because Damien Eccles, and like we we were sort of saying earlier, he plays up for the camera and he wants to come across as like cool and sophisticated or whatever. But he's clearly in over his head too. And there, there's a moment... Uh, at one point where he's he's talking to his lawyers about his testimony and they say like, well, why did you say this or why did you say that? And he's like, oh, I wasn't even really paying attention. Right. Like, he doesn't realize that you can't not pay attention when you're on the stand and you're on trial for murder. Like that's the right. time to pay attention. Right. And so, you know, like we said, we start with this Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. trial and uh, clearly the police have led him to this um, confession that, oh, yeah, you know. Um, I didn't actually kill them, but I was with Jason and Damien and I held one of them down while those two killed these boys, you know, and it's like, you know, he says like he left school at lunchtime and they're, and then they, they get to like, so you're in the woods in the middle of the night with these guys. Right. And it's like, they're just pushing for whatever they want. Um, and it's sad and it's kind of interesting because, uh, Jesse, Miss Kelly, they do offer him a plea deal if he's willing to testify against the other two, but he sticks to his guns and he says, you know, I was coerced into my confession and he never um, testifies against his friends, which I think is admirable, obviously. Yeah, there, I mean, absolutely it is. And there's that scene where his mother or his stepmother who raised him says that, you know, I'll be there in the courtroom and you, if you lie on the stand, you'll have to look at me and see and, and I'll be looking at you. And that's a very powerful moment there. And, and you know, that that reminds me of this other scene where it's the uh, where it's his father and his father's girlfriend now. And, you know, the the father's girlfriend says, well, if he's convicted, we'll never give him money. We'll never send him anything to make his life better. And his father says, I'll send him money like he's my son no matter what happens, you know? So yeah, I, you almost wonder like what this type of thing had to like have lasting effects on this town for decades, I would think. Yeah. I mean, it, this is really like the number one thing that this town is known for, I would say. <laughs> Although I will say like randomly, I watched this movie recently called, called Arkansas is uh, sort of like a comedic ish thriller with uh, Clark Duke and Liam Hemsworth. And uh, Vince Vaughn plays this like drug king, kingpin character. And there's all these flashbacks to the 80s as he rises to power. And they all take place in West Memphis. So I guess that's another thing that was there was uh, people selling drugs and uh, creating little drug empires. But yeah, I mean, I think if you say West Memphis to anyone, even, even probably who lives in Arkansas, they think of the West Memphis Three. That's what the town is known for, you know? Well, Josh, we're all wondering now, is Arkansas a good movie? Uh, it's an all right movie. Yeah. I don't think anyone is wondering that, but uh, if you if would like to know, it's kind of amusing. It's a little derivative of Elmore Leonard and Coen Brothers and stuff, but it's got some good performances and it showcases West Memphis, you know, so that's important. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, we've kind of covered the, the large scale of this and one filmmaking technique that I think is effective is that, um, you know, the, we never hear Berlinger or Sanofsky, you know, it's always the rephrasing of the question, um, by the subjects who are being interviewed. 
And um, so you really feel like you're kind of getting the story told to you by the people who are being interviewed as opposed to the directors. And uh, that those kind of first person interviews, along with that courtroom footage, which I mean, man, what access they had. And along with the kind of breaks with the Metallica soundtrack, that's kind of the spine of this whole movie and how it how it uh, sets sets its course. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important to mention the filmmaking here is it's not just this isn't just a news story. It's not just a news report, which, you know, I think some some of the the worst uh, true crime docu- documentaries just do that. They just throw together news footage and they, they call it a movie or a TV show. But this is a cinematic presentation and there's a lot of choices made like I was saying before, in terms of editing and in terms of framing and the way that that they present it, as, as, you, as you say, without their sort of editorializing, even though you can clearly come away from this movie with a perspective about whether these, these three teenagers are innocent, they're not directly telling you that. And I do think that's important. And the fact that, I mean, this movie is long and, and it can be a grind to sit through at times, but the fact that they go through things so methodically and they show you every little step of Jesse Miss Kelly's trial and then every little step of the other trial, and it's a very procedural kind of movie, I think that's important to give you the clear sense of what's going on. They're not trying to sensationalize this stuff. And it was interesting to me watching this again, I realized like Damien Eccles, who is the famous figure, he's the big West Memphis three, you know, the one who's most well-known, you barely even see him until like halfway through this movie, you know, when we we start talking to him in interviews and stuff. So they're really methodical about the way that they build this. Yeah, the first half is Miss Kelly and the second half is Eccles and Baldwin. Um, and I think, um, like you said, you're getting this access to what goes on in the courtroom, but not just that, you're getting the access to strategy sessions with the lawyers. You're getting lawyer conversations with the West Memphis Three. So yeah, they, they paint a very full picture. Um, I think we've probably really kind of expressed um, our admiration for this movie. Should we, uh, should we give it a rating Josh based on five uh, Bojangles chicken meals? Oh, that was, Mm. I I was going to go darker, but let's, let's do that with the chicken meals (laughs) instead. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad I took that one, huh? Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) What, what, what would you rate it out of five chicken meals? I think, I think the first time I watched it, I would have given it five. Because it was such um, a powerful piece. This time I'm giving it four for the things that we've talked about that it's it's hard to rewatch, man. So but it's a it's a very, very good film and you should watch this and the other two. So I'm going to go for Bojangles meals. All right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is a very good film, too. I'm going to give it three and a half. Uh, I think even though the length is justified, it definitely is a grind to watch. And in a way, because of the existence of so many other representations of the story, it it now feels sort of incomplete. That's not really a fault of the movie because it was complete as of the moment that it was made, but there's so much more afterwards. Um, but it is very much worthwhile. And I think it has that power still, even though we know so much more about what happened later, you can just watch this movie and and really get uh, that sense of the injustice of what went on. So I definitely, uh, recommend it, even though I don't know that I recommend watching it like three times as I have, but do, do watch it one time at least. So Dave, Dave, had you ever seen this one? I haven't. I've just always known of it as the movie with the Metallica music. Well, that is, that it is. Yes. Hey Dave, uh, no one in this movie has hair like you. <laughs> yeah, no, no one, no one that Good we can compare Dave to this time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Josh, before we get to that, to our next segment, or do you yes. feel like after watching this, you would rewatch the next two? No, no. I mean, especially because having seen the next two, I feel like they're also in sort of incomplete. You know, especially the second one is really just a bridge. There's nothing quite resolved in that movie, and I think even in the third one was being made like as their final sort of appeal was going through and they had to rush to include the fact that they eventually got released. Uh, so that movie, I, you know, again, it's been a while, but I remember that movie also feeling a little, a little incomplete. So I think, and we'll talk about this, but to me, I think maybe the best thing is you to watch this movie and then to watch West of Memphis, the Amy Berg movie that encapsulates the entirety of the case so that you get a full sense of it. But we can uh, get right back into that when we 
talk about the legacy of Paradise Lost. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the documentary Paradise Lost, directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. See how I pronounced that uh, so well there, Jason? Um, and uh, we, we've, we've really talked throughout about the legacy of this movie because it's kind of hard not to talk about it. Um, the West Memphis Three case overall, which dragged on for the next 15 years, is the main legacy of this movie that would not have gotten its attention were it not for this movie. Yeah, this helped free the West Memphis Three. Um, it took, they spent 18 years in jail. Um, you know, it's documented that all uh, Damien Eccles was raped and abused in jail and just horrible, just a horrible situation, obviously. And, uh, the, you know, like we said, Burnett would never take them on for a retrial. And then eventually they got off on an Alford plea, which means they're saying like, hey, we're saying we're not guilty, but we understand that you had enough evidence to convict us. Right. Which I know Miss Kelly and Baldwin said the only reason they took that was because Eccles was possibly going to get executed if they didn't take it. You know, they were willing to fight till the end to prove their innocence. But um, and then, of course, after the offered plea, that's when Burnett says, well, I think they should have had a retrial, not just a plea out, you know, like you piece of shit asshole, David Burnett, you know, but you're right. The, that is the biggest legacy is this help f- uh, free three innocent people. The other major legacy that I see is this in huge true crime like entirety uh, genre of entertainment and whether it's podcasts or, you know, Netflix uh, limited series or, you know, all over HBO everywhere, it all started or this was the kind of spike in the ground that, that lit that fire early on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked last season about Roger and me and how influential that movie is. And I feel like this movie is probably as influential. I mean, it's really, Uh, the kickstart to an entire genre, which these days feels like it's, you know, 50 to 60% of all documentaries made are in this genre. So that is a huge, huge legacy of it. And I think they do, as as we were kind of talking about before, I think they do a better job in this movie of making it a movie, of making it a full, complete, like cinematic uh, piece of art versus what a lot of true crime documentaries do now because there's such this like gold rush to make them and make them as quickly as possible and to cover every case that there is. You know, this this movie took a lot more care, I think, than a lot of those others do. Right. And now uh, you see that also in podcasts. Like I, the first two seasons of uh, Up and Vanish is a very good true crime podcast are great, but then they sign like a deal with like, uh, maybe oxygen or something. And now they're putting out like weekly episodes that are contained and it's like, eh, this isn't good. You know, like it takes time to, to craft good stories a lot of the time. Yeah. And I mean, we should say also that, that Joe Berlinger himself has become this, this huge figure in the world of true crime documentaries. And he's involved in a lot of TV series, uh, including there's one recently, and I think maybe the current season uh, is still airing or just con- uh, finished airing called Wrong Man on Stars. And I haven't seen this stuff, and I'm not saying it's good or it's not good, but he is certainly part of that machine right now that's like churning out tons of true crime content. Now, the other things we should talk about, you had mentioned West of Memphis. Um, I never watched that movie. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I saw it when it came out. It's from 2012, so it's been a while. But like I said, I think the the advantage that West of Memphis has is that it was made after sort of everything was over, you know, after they had put in that Alford plea and they had gotten out. And so that movie is able to kind of summarize everything that happened over these many, many, many years, whereas the Paradise Lost series is tracking these things as they're happening. And so they're never able to really get to like a conclusion. So I think especially the Paradise Lost sequels really just feel like Oh, here's some more stuff. Whereas this movie feels really like a self-contained piece. It ends with the conviction. As far as they were concerned, that was the end of the story. They didn't realize what would happen later. So this movie feels a little more complete. And that's why I'm saying, I think if you watch this and then you watch West of Memphis, you'll get a full sense of the of the case and it might not take you quite as much time. But it has been a while since I saw that movie. So I can't, I can't give you details on it. 
And what about Devil's Knot, which was first a book, you know, kind of written around this case and then became a narrative film by Adam McGoyan? Um, yeah, that that I haven't seen, but it was very poorly reviewed at the time it came out. And I think um, and not that's not to say that there couldn't be an interesting like narrative film take on this. Um, but it sounds like that wasn't it. But I never saw it. Did you see it? I did not. Uh, nor did I see Metallica, some kind of monster, the documentary directed by these two. That I did see because, as I've said, I'm a big Metallica fan. And that's a really fascinating film. I mean, it's very different than this, obviously, because it's not a crime documentary. It's about, um, you know, Metallica in the process of recording their album St. Anger and when they're in therapy. But it is really it's, it's really one of the most interesting, like, music documentaries that's been made because of the psychological approach that it takes and the way that it deconstructs these, like, macho heavy metal guys and shows their sensitive side and the the songwriting process. So uh, I I think that's a really interesting film. Sadly, I have also seen Blair Witch 2, which uh, was one of two narrative films that Joe Berlinger has directed. And uh, that's not that's not a good movie. But uh, he also made that uh, that Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron recently for Netflix, which is his other narrative film. But that, that one I haven't seen. You know, we're one thing I missed when we were talking about it was um one scene i wanted to bring up was uh there's a scene with stevie branch's family and they all say that they could never forgive these guys you know they could never forgive the killer and then the grandfather you know we've kind of you know talked about the negatives of religion and everything and then the grandfather just kind of slowly and methodically says you know it's it's in our religion to forgive people uh, they're obviously Christian here. You know, this is what Jesus wants. And as hard as it's going to be, we're going to have to forgive them because that's what we believe. And I thought that was a really effective uh, scene and, and showed another side of this thing. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that scene is a good contrast to the scene that you were talking about earlier with Jesse Miss Kelly's father's girlfriend, where she's adamant about that he could never, if he really did this, he could never be forgiven. We'd have to cut ties with him completely. And this is the flip side of one of the victim's relatives talking about how actually as Christians, we should be forgiving. So that that is a, a way that, that the, the movie has that kind of balance and nuance that it doesn't, it doesn't always have, but in those moments it does. So I, I think that's a, a powerful scene to point out. And as far as legacy wise, I got one more thing to say. This is a, this. I don't I don't know if you know. I think you know this, Josh. So um, I wrote about music for magazines like Las Vegas Weekly for probably a decade or so. And when Eddie Vedder was on his solo tour, he played the Palms out here. And Eddie Vedder was obviously a very um, vocal supporter and advocate of getting the West Memphis three out. And um, at the concert either sitting right next to me or right behind me was Jason Baldwin. And it was oh, right wow. very soon after they got out, I think. I mean, I'd have to look it up. Maybe it was a couple of years. But this concert was a great concert. And Eddie Vedder kind of pointed out Baldwin and mentioned the case and everything. And um, it, it became transcendent. I, I mean, it was one of the few five-star reviews I've ever given um, in a, in a live concert, it was a great concert, but the emotion that filled the room, um, with this situation and with, with this guy who was in jail for 18 years, um, now getting to enjoy his freedom and, and his life, uh, it, it was really emotional. And, uh, it was really nice that, uh, he had, he was, he was a sweet man and you could tell he was just so thankful to be living again. Yeah, that's an amazing experience. I, I think I remember talking about that concert with you, and I, I wish I had been able to go to it. But the other thing, you mentioned Eddie Vedder, and Damien Eccles actually co-wrote lyrics to a Pearl Jam song uh, on an album that I think was released. I think it was when he was still in prison, uh, actually, but he co-wrote. I forget the name of the song. It's on their their self-titled album with the avocado cover. Um, and uh, they they certainly all were, I mean, not the only ones. There were a lot of advocates. And I think maybe in the later Paradise Lost movies and definitely in West of Memphis, you see all these celebrity advocates, people like Eddie Vedder. And I know um, Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks is another one who was a huge advocate for them. So that that became, it became this whole celebrity thing. There was a benefit album maybe for them. I mean, just the, the pop culture presence of it. I think even I was just seeing Damien Eccles did a guest voice on some Netflix animated series like just this year. So he's still got this weird pop culture connection going on for him, uh, even after 
years after he's been released. So we should mention maybe also, we talked about Joe Berlinger having uh, having this long true crime career. Bruce Sanofsky, uh worked a bit in TV as well, but he passed away in 2015. So he hasn't, uh, he hasn't made any more documentaries since then, weirdly enough. It's tough to work in television after you die. <laughs> it is tough. It's not impossible, but it's tough. <laughs> so. But hey, man, he left a legacy, right? Absolutely. He did. I mean, if, if nothing else, the movies that he made with Joe Berlinger, these three movies, the Metallica movie that we mentioned, uh, and their first film, Brothers Keeper, which is another true crime film that I haven't seen, but I think was very well regarded as well. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's another, um, um, what do we want to call it? Like iconic moment in the in the movement of not only documentary, but you're like you're saying true crime documentary. Yeah, they certainly, the two of them created this body of work that that has a massive influence still to this day. So that is Paradise Lost, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie pod on the Twitter, awesome movie year on uh, Facebook and uh, and uh, Instagram. Instagram's not very good. Um, no. I mean, as don't, a, don't I like Instagram, I'm saying our Instagram is not very good. It's Personally, um, you can follow me, uh, Jason Harris comedy on Facebook and Instagram. My Instagram's good. Jay Harris comedy on Twitter. Hey, guess who tweeted me this past week? Kevin Smith, who we've talked about in past episodes. So that's kind of fun. And yeah. then, um, I'm also, uh, at go for Jason.com. It's, it's not a good website. No, it's almost as bad as our uh, awesome movie year Instagram, I think. I'm going to combine <laughs> uh, the two. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I am at joshbellhateseverything.com. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter, where Kevin Smith is not tweeting at me, but that's okay. Uh, and you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. I tweet at you sometimes, Josh. That's, that's uh, true. You're no, you're no <laughs> Kevin Smith, though. That's true. Well, you can uh, follow us over on all the social medias at Piecing Pod and listen to us wherever you listen to this great podcast. This is such a great podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jason, what's on our next episode? It's the Josh pick, everybody. What? Josh's pick of 1996. John Sales, Lone Star. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, it has actually been, I picked it, but it's been a while since I've seen it. So that'll be an interesting discussion. Tune in next time to hear about Lone Star. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. 